This season of Not Alone was made possible by Australia Post, proudly supporting Beyond Blue. Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains a first-hand account of mental health issues and sexual abuse. If you or someone you know needs support, visit beyondblue.org.au. Call our support service on 1300 224636 or call 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell and this is Not Alone. Incredible stories from everyday Australians talking about their mental health to help you with yours. And this episode is all about trauma and its impact on intimacy. The idea of me ever being able to make a connection with someone is near impossible. I've struggled to feel love. I am terrified of physical contact. Can't help but feel like our relationship is wearing thin. I can't even bear being hugged. I only have a few close friends. I know instinctively that my friends and family love me. I push people away. But I don't feel anything. There was nothing I could do to snap out of that headspace. Just feels like I'm never going to have the experience of forming a relationship. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there I've confused between the ages of 17 and 23, just wondering what the hell is this person about. This is Ross. He's a dairy farmer who grew up in central Victoria. It's where he still lives now with his family. And for Ross, a farmer, was something he always was destined to be. Always as a little boy, I think it was just natural, you know, just always being with Dad. So it was kind of wherever he went, I probably went as well, so... What are your memories of, uh, of watching your parents' farm? Uh, it was tough. I still remember droughts in, in the 70s. I remember watching on TV cows being shot and, you know, pits being dug and cows worth 50 cents and, and watching per- your parents kind of go through that. Mm. But I think they always tried to protect you from that sort of stuff, always trying to make sure we had what we wanted. You know, they would always go without before us, I think. You know, it was always always about making sure we had what we needed. So in, uh, in 1995, you took over the farm with one of your brothers? Yeah, yeah. So oldest brother, Colin. You know, I was pretty excited to be farming with my brother, um, you know, extending the family legacy of next generation, third generation of family farming. So um, um, I think it made Dad proud that he had his two boys home. But underneath the surface of his rural life, Ross had a bubbling anger. I suppose I, uh, I was always angry. I always um, had this sort of short fuse that would kind of just go off. You know, I'd just rant and rave at cows and, and uh, something just went wrong. I'd just explode and um, punch and kick and um, it, once you were just I was going off I had no control it was just me venting and it was just me letting out everything that I could at that point so whatever was I was frustrated at that cow or that tractor or whatever I was angry at just took the whole brunt mm. and look and I suppose it's just it was just me. That's I just thought that's how I am. Did the people around you, did they pick up on that anger? No, not really. It was just, um, you know, Colin, my brother, would just walk the other way. 
mum or dad would probably just absorb it. They just thought I was angry because the care was doing something wrong. Right. And said, oh, well, that's just Ross being Ross and his short fuse. So you've already got quite a lot going on underneath the surface and then the drought hits. Yep. How does that change everything? Yeah, so we took the farm over about 95, 96. Uh, 2003, we expanded the farm. Uh, we bought the next-door neighbours 360, 380 acres. The drought had just started by that stage, 2001, 2002, but we were on, you know, at the time we were saying, oh, well, you know, the drought will go another 12, 18 months. That's usually, you know, two to three-year drought. It's probably all that we'd seen mm. previous to that through Dad's history and everyone else's. So we thought, all right, well, we think we can knuckle down for that and then we'll come out the other side and away we go. But by 2008, the drought hadn't lifted. By this stage, Ross had a wife, Paula, and two young boys, Matthias and Hamish. And the impact of the drought, coupled with his bubbling rage, put a strain on his family relationships. You start to get angry at them and then you just think it's all starting to get a bit too hard, I suppose. And at that point, did you have any inkling that it might be linked to something that had happened years past or were you just quite focused in the present? No, I, I thought I was over that. Right. I probably thought all my worries were over when I was married and had kids, but that was probably not the right assessment. Realising that his stress and his anger were getting to a level of concern for those he loved, Ross decided to reach out to the family GP, Alan. I say, look, I'm not really well. You know, Paul and I are going through troubles and, um, you know, the farm's really a mess and, you know, drought and we're losing a heap of dough and just not sure what I'm meant to be doing. I think it's all Paul's fault. I was kind of in this mindset that it's all Paul's fault. And I was kind of thinking that if Alan said, yeah, it's Paul's fault, I'll get Paula to come in and I'll tell her what needs to be done and that'll fix all the problems. And like a good GP, he just sat there and didn't say a word. He just kept waiting for me to just to keep speaking. And then I just said, oh, by the way, I was abused when I was a child and, uh, and I think I really need some help. So it started when I was probably about five and and that's more so it might have been a bit earlier but that's kind of my time frame of what I can remember and so it started when I was five and finished when I was about 12, 13. And did you recognise it as abuse at the time? I didn't recognise it as abuse. I knew it didn't feel right. Mm. It was just what happened. When the abuse finally ended, around the time Ross started high school, he thought that would be the end of it. He thought that would be the last time he would have to think about what he'd experienced. But over the next year or so, it was kind of, you know, becoming a teenager and puberty and just trying to find myself. It got harder. I felt felt the shame because I think it started to dawn on me that really what had happened wasn't right and... I couldn't tell anyone, so I just – it was not wanting to get people into trouble or, you know, because mum and dad never knew. So it was kind of trying to protect them or not wanting them 
to feel guilt and shame. It was probably me just saying, well, I'm going to take it all in myself and, and I'm going to wear it and own it. It was kind of this just wall that I put up. It was kind of just that separation of, um, you know, this childhood that I was a normal kid with this secret, I suppose, that I just couldn't really talk about. Mm. And uh, if I don't have to talk about it, it'll go away. And so, yeah, that's what I did for years. Were you good at hiding it? Exceptional. Because I think, you know, I think as a kid, even in high school, like I think my reports, everyone, they said, oh, look, he's a really lovely kid to have in class. He's a joy. Uh, yeah, it was just me hiding and I would just use my imagination to make up stuff to try and help me get through those, those tough years. Did school get harder over time? Uh, yeah, it, it did. It, um, so when I was 14, I had meningitis and I missed a full year of school. I, I missed all of year nine. When I had meningitis, I, I remember I was in the hospital. That was one of the points where I really just wanted to die because I thought, well, this is a way out. I don't have to tell mum, don't have to tell dad. If I died, no one will know my secret. And so, that's what you're thinking at year nine. Mm-hmm. That is an incredible pressure to put on yourself. Mm-hmm. When Ross finally came home from the hospital, he was plagued by persistent headaches. He tried to return to school, but he found it hard to concentrate. And for probably a few good months, I'd end up just on the farm. So I'd go help mum and dad milk cows or I'd I'd be doing stuff on the farm and I'd be fine. They'd try to put me back at school and I'd crash. Why do you think that was? Because I was hiding the not being able to deal and relate with people because they weren't like me. But the real reason was just the anxiety and I was just petrified because I just couldn't ask the teachers for help because I thought they'd think I was stupid. It was showing a sign of weakness. And I think from the abuse and feeling threatened, I put that wall up and just hide and so... I just couldn't break out and just ask and say, oh, can you help me with this, please? I have no idea what I'm, what I'm doing. So that started again the uh, running away. So the answer was, well, this is all too hard. I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. Let's just drop out and we'll, we'll go home and be on the farm. Ross quit school during his final year, months before end-of-year exams. Being away from school released this pressure valve, and for a while, things started to improve. But he still kept everything to himself, and his underlying issues went unaddressed. And as he became an adult, it began to present additional problems. I couldn't be intimate with people. I had probably one or two girlfriends, if you call them that. They were more just friends because it never went anywhere because I never could let it go anywhere. I just didn't know how. I remember having one girlfriend and we were sitting on a, on a bench and the only way I felt I could be intimate was by slapping her on the back saying, oh, you're a good mate. I just I couldn't hold her hand. I, couldn't, I just couldn't have that intimate touch because the only intimate touch I had was with the person who abused me. And so I would say I don't know how to do this because you're being too nice, you're not abusing me, I don't know how to have a relationship with you. 
So that whole exchange has, in effect, been poisoned. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the advice of one of his brothers, Ross signed up for an agricultural exchange program where he would work on and experience farm life overseas. As part of the induction, he headed along to a welcome, sort of get-to-know-you barbecue, hoping to meet some people and maybe even make some new friends. Probably 10 minutes before I was about to leave because I had to go home and milk, um, this girl just came up and started talking to me, and that was Paula. I thought, hmm, that's nice. So that's where we met. But nothing happened for 12 months. Ross chose Canada for his exchange, while Paula opted for the UK. Both were gone for the year. When they got back and reconnected, things, they moved slowly, cautiously. Intimacy was still a barrier for Ross that even Paula's very obvious affections couldn't quite help him overcome. Then they went down to Melbourne together to attend a ball, celebrating the end of their overseas exchange. They headed down the day before with plans to stay with a friend of Paula's after a night out. Ross wanted to go to the footy with his brother. And uh, I said to her, I said, oh, would you mind, do you want to come to the footy with us? She said, oh, no, I'm catching up with a girlfriend. I'm going out to the tunnel, which is a nightclub back in the 90s. And I was gutted because <laughs> I just wanted her to come to the footy with me. And so they went their separate ways for the night. Paula off for some dancing and Ross off to watch his beloved Hawks get humiliated by North Melbourne. After the game, though, Ross went back to Paula's friend's place, just as they planned. But when he woke, Paula still hadn't arrived back. Now, Ross liked Paula, but he hadn't made that known to her. He couldn't even find the words to say or the signals that would let her know. And so his inability to navigate even these tiny moments of intimacy resulted in a very familiar response. I was just angry. Just so damn angry, I thought... I really like you, and how dare you not come home? And so she'd met someone, and that was fine. So, well, it wasn't fine. I wasn't fine by it, but anyway. So I think she got home about 10 or 11 o'clock the next morning. She could see I wasn't very happy. And we just left it at that. That was it for a week or so. And then we ended up having part of the... Um, AgriVenture as alumni and we're going to be involved in that and support the next lot of kids that were coming out from overseas and and help them while they're over here. And there was a camp down at Lawn, down on the coast. And so at that weekend, it was very clumsy and awkward and and then we come back home and we talked. And so I told her, I said, look, I'm being abused I just, I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. Um, and she said, it's fine. We'll get through it together. So, we, yeah, started dating when I was about 24 and, um, yeah, dated for six years. Uh, I, um, she would come over to our place uh, on the weekends and then that got a bit awkward because mum and dad was next door. <laughs> and uh, then we moved out and rented a house and uh, we lived there for a couple of years and then got married in 2000. How were things between you just after you got married? There was Things weren't really right. I got married because I thought that was the right thing to do. 
How do you mean? I don't know. It, it's probably Paula had got me opened up to experience life like a typical normal man, but then I hadn't had any other experiences with anybody else. And so I wasn't able to find who I was. But there was this sort of maybe guilt or of Paula, you know, doing me the favour or supporting me in, in my journey that I felt I owed it to her. Mm. It's a lot of different emotions kind of stacking on top of each yeah. other there. So I, um, I loved her, but there was a nagging, there was a doubt. And I suppose there was jealousy from me. Why jealousy? Jealousy because she'd had experiences that I can never have. And so we had huge fights over that and bringing stuff up that had no relevance to our relationship going forward. How did things change when you had kids? I think for me it was an evolutionary step. It was kind of what I wanted to do. It's I love kids. I thought this will solve another piece of the puzzle. And you have so many stories of Dad saying there's this moment of emotional feeling of love for your mm. child. And I remember sit, sitting in the birthing suite and Matthias was born and I didn't feel anything. It just felt like, oh, I need to go home. I've got cows calving. I've got to get home. What were you afraid of? Paul and I had a discussion. So we, with Matisse being a boy, it was whether we were going to circumcise or not circumcise. Okay. So Paul was a no and I was a yes. And I said, well, if he's not circumcised, you have to wash him. You have to bath him. And Paul said, why? I said, oh, I'm just too scared I'm going to abuse him when I'm washing him, which is totally ridiculous, but... That's where my head was. So it was this fear of um, perpetrating what had happened to me. And I suppose as Matthias grew, he looks like me, acts a lot like me. All I could see was me. Mm. And so all I could see was me being abused. So that just got harder and harder. a lot of pressure on a relationship between you and Paula, even if you take out the the complicating factor of having two kids, which is stressful enough at the best of times. How are you two coping as the kids got older? I think like all marriages and all families, the dynamic changes. Hmm. When Matthias came, there was a light bulb for Paula and so she just turned her full attention and effect onto Matthias. But I think because I was having issues with seeing him as being me, me fearing I was abusing him. I think there started resentment with him being there. And so it was this sort of thinking about, well, do I find somebody else, you know, have that affair or that emotional connection with someone else because I hide things so well. I don't think she knew. Which makes it very complicated for her to navigate you, yeah, yeah, I imagine. yeah. I think for her and I think for most people, they, I think most people on the outside would see this really great, strong couple with a lovely little boy um, running their own business and growing and, you know, saying, oh, gee, haven't they all got it together? Not yeah. knowing that it just seems to be uh, chasing the tail of one thing after another, but it hasn't. I haven't solved anything along the way. I'm just I'm adding to it yeah. but not processing it. 
It was March 2008. Um, Paul and I had gone away with the boys. We were going to my younger cousin's wedding. We went to the wedding. It was down at Mount Gambier. Um, one of my cousins was going straight back home and uh, I just said to Paula, I said, oh, you take the, the two kids and you go home with my, our cousin and I'm just going to shoot up and see my brother Trevor in Adelaide for a couple of days and then I'll shoot home. If I had to say, I was, that was me planning to run away, leave. Ended up shooting up to Adelaide, sitting down with my brother because my brother and I had uh, gone through a lot of our childhood stuff together. And then you got that, I don't know, four or five hour drive from Adelaide and uh, that drive, I suppose it was the starting of, of of me, I suppose, being on my own and, and my thoughts starting to run away with me or thinking of whether I really wanted to farm or not farm or... So in four hours of driving, I got to this um, sea intersection and uh, I always remember just the sign in front of me was arrow to the left saying to Sydney and the right was going back to Chuka, Shepparton. And uh, I would have sat at that intersection for a half an hour or so just deciding which way. For me, the left turn to Sydney was to run away. I just didn't think Paula really understood. Be better off if I wasn't there. Uh, my two boys would be better off if I wasn't there. Why was that idea so attractive in the moment? Because I think it comes back to that moment when I had meningitis laying in that hospital, it just solved all the problems. And then the role playing from that was saying, well, if Matthias and Hamish didn't have a dad, how would they feel? You know, that's probably the adult conscious saying, well, how are they really going to feel? And they're not going to feel great. Yeah. Which brought me back to turning right. Taking that right turn back to his family, back to his life, filled Ross with this recommitment to work on all of those issues that have been plaguing him. He vowed to go with Paula and seek professional support for their marriage. And for himself, he made a promise to visit their GP the very first chance he could get. And it's that visit to Alan, the GP, where Ross opened up about that trauma from his past. When you said those words to the GP... What did it trigger in the rest of your life? It was no turning back. I'd opened it out of a secret of being just in the family, yeah. so to speak. Couldn't be stuff, stuffed back it away. Couldn't be now. stuffed back away. Yeah. So um, by telling Alan, he wasn't going to stuff this back in a box and say, oh, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to try and solve this and how do we take that next step? That next step was to see a counsellor. The GP recommended Jenny someone he thought would be perfect for Ross. And on his first appointment with Jenny, Ross, well, he unpacked everything. What were some of the lessons that you learned about yourself coming out of those? Because, I mean, that first purge is, is one thing, but at a certain point, Jenny, I imagine, started to give you some framework to yeah. understand what had happened to you and the effect and how your, your body and your mind yeah. had started to react to it. So what are some of the things you learned? I live with three or four people, so to speak, that makes Ross up. So there's a pre-abuse kid. Mm -hmm. 
I describe him as a quite confident, he likes the attention, he likes standing up. And then we have that boy at seven or eight that was abused that shut down and said, right, we're going to protect you, Ross. We're here to look after you. When the abuse is on, we're going to close everything down. We'll shut everyone out. We'll just sit and hide. You know, we'll lock you down and we'll protect you and it'll go away and it'll stop and then you can come back out. Hmm. And then there's that adolescent boy that's trying to find himself um, but He's got this little boy stopping him because he says, no, don't don't stick your head up because it's going to get knocked off and you need to stay and be safe. So I think I've learnt that when I go into crisis, see if I'm getting threatened by somebody or something or a feeling is that to take that breath and understand, well, well what's driving that? Who's driving it? It's that little boy that's scared It's and, and give it a reference and then the adult me, the, who I am now, to be able to sit down with that boy and say, it's okay, you're not going to get abused. Ross has been seeing Jenny for the better part of the last 12 years. Hasn't been every week, like sometimes he goes months without seeing her. But she will be a constant in his life. In fact, it was to Jenny that Ross and Paula went when they were finally ready to sit down and talk about their relationship. By sitting down with Jenny, we are just more honest with each other now. Um, I think we've got over our... Well, I've been able to deal with my anger. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing I notice now is... I've still got a little short view. I can't find something. I'm I'm blind for looking. I think it's a bloke thing. Um, And I'll get frustrated, but the anger's not... That's just me just frustrated that I can't find something, not that anger that's sitting underneath. That's... It's situational anger yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. to this is a deep ra- well of rage just popping out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just keeps you on track to be honest with each other that, yes, I'm, I am, I can be a jealous person, but some of that jealousy was of actions of Paula doing that she didn't realise where it was coming from me. So to understand yeah. my journey and, um, you know, Abuse is a lot more complicated than the physical act. Yeah. Um, for me, I don't. I don't think about the physical acts anymore. Okay. They're, they're they're well. If I wanted to, they're there, but they're not front and center of why I am who I am now. It's all the other emotional baggage, and anxiety and fear and all that that comes. It's not the the physical component. Ross and Paul's boys are now teenagers, 17 and 14. And as many would argue, raising teenagers is no doubt a trial in itself, but even more so for Ross. And how would you say your relationship with your boys has been? Because, I mean, earlier we talked about early on there was a lot of anxiety around bathing. How would you say your relationship was with them? Uh, With Matthias, it has always been a little bit jagged and tense, and I was feeling guilt of not being honest with him and also probably guilt for Hamish as well that he's so much like me that... And, and Jenny spoke a little bit about when we did early, some early counselling, that if you don't go through the process and understand who you are, you can you can transfer your issues onto your children because it's just the way you'll react with them and treat them and, and you'll give them baggage and they'll be thinking, what the hell is this baggage that I've got? Yeah. And... 
I didn't want to leave a legacy of what ifs. Yeah. I wanted to have that honest conversation. I wanted them to be able to be comfortable to say, oh, if I need to go see someone at a point in time, it's fine. So you wrote them a letter? Yeah. Hi, Matthias and Hamish. I'm writing you this letter as part of my work I'm doing with my counsellor. I've been keeping a secret from you both that has been weighing on me heavily for a long time now. Between the ages of 5 and 12 years, I was sexually abused. This has had a huge effect on me growing up, especially during my teenage years, through to my late 20s and early 30s. I have talked about when I first started... And I think probably over the last few months what I've noticed is... It's, it's opened up an honesty of that we're checking with each other now. That even like coming and doing this today, both of them were saying, oh, look, it's okay, Dad. We'll touch base tonight and um, we'll check in and see how you are. I'm not wanting to pass on my shame, guilt and lack of self-confidence. I'm not wanting to pass on the experiences I had as a teenager. I was bullied and picked on at school and struggled to stand up for myself due to being abused. Teeth or when I thought... It's just opened it up that now we don't... There's no lies, hopefully, so when they're experiencing things as they get older, they can come to us and we can have that honest conversation. We don't have to hide. And if something bad happens to them along the way, they can come to us because you just want to protect your kids. Earlier I said that you both would be better off without me. Please never think this is the truth. When I've been in my most darkest moments, deep down inside of me, it's always the both of you that has dragged me out and drives me to be a better person. I cannot love two people any more than I love you both. Love, Dad. (sighs) Ross experienced horrible trauma with impacts that were far and wide-reaching. It polluted his relationships, it poisoned his capacity for intimacy, and it nearly cost him his family and his life. But when he opened up, when he gave himself over to the vulnerability of admitting that he needed help, things began to change. Ross's recovery journey is long, and he will admit to you himself, it will never be finished He knows the challenges with his mental health aren't over, but for him, it is about being prepared. And that's something that a good support network, a loving family, and yes, even a farm can help with. The farm is a great place to collect your thoughts. And I really think for those early years, the farm did save me. Yes, it was a means of hiding, but... It allowed me time to grow, allowed me time to build some confidence. But I think sitting on a tractor, thinking time. So you're by yourself, you got the humming. I think as a little boy, I would sit in the dairy and the pulsators would be clicking away backwards and forwards. And if you rest your ear against the metal work, it would vibrate. And so I'd just fall asleep, leaning against hearing that noise, clicking away. It is. It's just that sort of. It's that sort of safe space. The interplay between trauma 
anger and intimacy can be a really difficult one to understand and navigate. So I sat down with Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blasky, to unpick what was going on under the surface. Welcome back, Dr. Grant Blasky, for The Way In. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, great to chat to you, Mark. Just listening to Ross's story, a symptom that's very much, I think, present throughout Ross's journey has been this anger or this short fuse, as he calls it. Is it common for people who've experienced trauma to have that kind of short fuse? Does that sound familiar to you? It really did. Uh, As a GP, you see people who are getting themselves in all sorts of trouble with uncontrolled anger, affects relationships, sometimes legal trouble, um, the guilt afterwards, and actually it can affect them getting on with some therapy and actually sorting it out, which is a bit of a shame because the therapist can be great to help understand the anger, develop some circuits, some short-circuit strategies to actually uh, head off the anger and help them anticipate what are some really anger-provoking situations that I've got coming up. So there's um, a lot to be gained from people getting help for undermanaged anger. Totally. I mean, Ross's recovery journey really started in a GP clinic and even for something as serious as, as the abuse and trauma that he suffered... The GP can be a first port of call for anybody listening, can't it? Look, as a GP myself, I can tell you um, often it's quite a good spot for a trusted, non-judgmental sort of chat with someone who's often known you for years or decades, right? So we're a good start. Having said that, most of us GPs, me included, we're not going to be experts on managing a really complex sexual abuse problem or, you know, a level that really requires a specialist mental health person. But as a start point, GPs can be great. And it was lovely to hear how that GP was able to just Mm. give him the space and um, he was able to talk to him. Yeah, I think that trust counts for a lot, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. Are there specific support services out there for people who've experienced sexual assault that you think are worth people knowing about? Absolutely. So there's a national service, uh, 1-800-RESPECT, which you can call Confidential Advice for Sexual or Family Violence. There's a particular group that looks at childhood trauma and abuse called the Blue Knot Foundation, and you could find them on the web as well. And then all the various states and territories have their own assault services with various names, and you can find them pretty quickly online. Dr Grant Blasky, thank you so much. It's lovely to talk to you again. Great to chat. Huge thank you to Ross for sharing his story and to Paula, Matthias and Hamish for supporting him to do it. You can join the conversation and share your story at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. And if you or someone you know needs support, you can visit our website or call support service on 1300 2246. We'll put some info and resources in the show notes. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast hosted by me, Mark Fennell, produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton and Sarah Alexander. It was recorded by Ryan De Silva with sound design and mixing by Wayne Ewan. This podcast was produced on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung, Gadigal and Jarjarwurrung country. We pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.